Welcome to the Collective Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, please visit thecollectivechurch.ca. favorite things to preach on. I think if I had one, one preach left, this is probably where it would be. But um, I think I would call this, this preach Life in the Father. I didn't know what to call it, and I was actually thinking of calling it something different, but I think I'd call it Life in the Father. And this journey of mine started probably 2010. This journey of discovering the Father, we, we, Auntie and I were in, uh, in the States, we were at uh, Bethel Church in Reading, and we were there for the worship school, and we went to the, the Sunday church meeting, and it was Father's Day, and Chris Vallotton preached this amazing preach on the Father, and yeah, I guess it's, you know, I've been on this journey ever since, you know, it's been an amazing journey. Um, but I think for me personally, the irony is that uh, my, my parents got divorced when I was seven. And uh, I lived with my mom. And then it, when I was about 10, uh, we moved to Durban. And so, and so my dad, for many reasons, just couldn't come with. You know? and, and so from the age of 10 to the age of 25, I never lived in the same city as my dad. So never closer than 600 kilometers away because I was in Cape Town for a while, so that was even more, you know. And, uh, yeah, so, so it's almost ironic that I get to experience this. It's a really beautiful privilege to be able to have a, a revelation of, of a good dad, you know. And it's not that my dad wasn't a good dad. He was just far away, you know. He was actually really not a good dad, not a bad dad at all. He was a good dad, just physically far away. And I think through some of that... Through some of that lens, I got to thinking that the Father God was far away too. And it's, it's such a lie. <laughs> um, but I think every one of us has these, has these defaults. You know, we have these lenses that we look through life, look at life through. And uh, I mean, how many of us had perfect dads? How much pleasure it was. How many of us didn't? You know, everyone, <laughs> all of us. How many, um, how many of us had father figures that disappointed us? Some of us maybe even had dads that, that died or, or just were never around. And, and so we, we don't even have any experience of what a good father should be. Uh, that... that in, that influences how we see our, our, our daddy in heaven. Um, how many of you know how powerful beliefs and, and, and perceptions and thoughts actually are? They, they are so powerful. Uh, Caroline Leaf, um, actually she's on Auntie's next podcast. But she says, she says that, power, that thoughts have the ability to change your physical body, your mind physically. The way you think can change your, your physical body. And one of the things that I do for a living is I, I value companies, value businesses, you know. It's something that I've spent a lot of time on over many years and, and I know a lot about it. And, uh, and then at the same time, I watch markets go up and go down because of people's thoughts. People's perceptions have power to move markets, you know. 
and sometimes completely independent of the actual fundamentals in, in a business. It's, it goes up and it goes down, you know. And it's purely because of people's thoughts. Thoughts are powerful. Proverbs 23 says, uh, Proverbs 23 verse 7 says, For as a man thinks within himself, so is he. And it's, it's the truth. So don't let our mindset detract from the truth. The great thing is that we have the power to change the way we think. It's actually a choice. Yeah. Choose life. Yeah. Choose the Father. There's a scripture in um, Deuteronomy that says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live. So that's where I got the, the, the title for my preach, Life in the Father. Choose life. I'm not saying don't choose Jesus or anything like that. This, a relationship with the Father is critical to a wholeness within the Trinity. They are one too, you know. So, why, why is it important though to have a good perspective of the Father? Why, why is it even necessary, you know? The, I think if we don't have a true perspective of, of our daddy God in heaven, every aspect of our life is substandard. I think if we go into a meeting as a son or a daughter that feels like they deserve to be there because they have been called, it's going to be very different to a person who comes as an orphan. Going to a business meeting like Oliver, you know, he's going to have some more maybe, you know. I think it changes every aspect. How you, you, can, you, you, how you impact society will not be the same if you don't understand the Father's love and the way the Father thinks, for you, thinks about you. It's, gonna, it's completely, completely different. Two ends of, opposite ends of the world. God gets blamed for a lot of things. <laughs> Even by agnostics and atheists, we do not. Obviously, no, they're not as agnostic or atheist as they think. But I think let's get into some scripture and maybe let's see what, what a true understanding of the Father is. These scriptures are, are um, scriptures that I'm sure most of you have heard many times before. And so, so they tend to become cliches. And so I would encourage you to try and break off the cliches before we read the, the word. Because even the angels see him every day and they see new sides of his face every day. So, so, so let's get into some of these scriptures. And I guess a good place to start is at the beginning. <laughs> I think some of you might have been at the, at the at, well, a lot of you were at the heart journey. So some of this is going to be similar. But... A lot is different. <laughs> so we start at the beginning because all great stories outline the nature of the main character uh, really well in the beginning. And this is a true real life story written by the greatest storyteller of all. So I think let's, <laughs> let's see what he's about. So Genesis... Genesis 1 to 3, chapter 1 to 3. In the beginning, chapter 1, God creates the heavens and the earth, creates night and day, creates the sea, creates the land, 
He creates the animals and he says they're all good. And then he creates Adam and he says he's very good. He created him in his image and it's very good. And then in Genesis 2, the story takes a bit of a twist. In Genesis 2 and 3, there's only two trees, by the way, that are mentioned by name. Okay? It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. We hear about the tree of life a little bit later, but it's important to know that there's two. We only hear mainly about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And I would say that this, these scriptures, this scripture is probably some of the most misunderstood, misunderstood scriptures around. Because if you ask someone about the, you know, Adam and Eve, they would tell you about uh, disobedience and the curse and, and banishment. And that's, it's really not what it's about. It's kind of the opposite, actually. So, in Genesis 2, God says to Adam, You may surely eat of every tree in this garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's a warning. We all have those things that we know we shouldn't do. And, but then straight after that, God's loving heart comes out again. He says, it's not good for my boy to be alone. So I'm going to make him a, a partner. But then, before he makes Eve, he says, to, he says to Adam, hey, here are the animals I just made. Name them. You know? And it says, he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. It's like, I don't care. You name them. <laughs> how many times have we had, you know, for those of us with kids, how many of us said, just watch our kids do something for the pure purposes, purpose of the joy of watching them do something. It's no difference to God. It was his joy to see his boy name something that he had done, he had made. And so that's the, that the first thing is that God wants partnership. He wants to partner with us in everything. Uh, I mean, the fact that, he's, that Jesus is the head and we the body is like the perfect partnership. He, he wants us to be his hands. So... So then you can see this he's a loving God who thinks about his boy all the time and he wants to partner with him all the time. So then we start getting to Genesis 3 and this is where it starts heating up a little bit. So he says, Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, so obviously Eve has been made now, he says to the woman, did God actually say? So that's the first thing. Coming back to our importance of our beliefs. Serpent challenged one of, Adam, one of Eve's beliefs. And, and believing the wrong thing can have bad consequences. And God didn't have anything to do with that wrong belief. You know, the irony is that we take our beliefs and our, and our skewed perspectives and we somehow transfer we somehow transfer our experience and we convert that into what God thinks about us it's the strangest thing it's that we have these experiences and then we transfer them onto God and assume that that's what he's like and it's not the truth and that's the lie that Eve was sold right there that maybe her dad wasn't good so he says, did God actually say that you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to, was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Uh, but they hid themselves from his presence among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard a sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Can you imagine the devastation of a dad who created the heavens and the earth, created a, a place for his kid to be? It's like when we, when, when we have a new baby and we create this perfect room for our kid. And... And, and he arrives and he doesn't even know anything. He just arrives in this perfect little space. We've just prepared. Can you imagine the devastation of a dad who's created the heavens and the earth and this perfect garden for intimacy and for connection and all of a sudden it's broken? I would also be angry. <laughs> God says to them, what have you done? What is this have you, that you've done? And yes, God was angry. But I don't think he was angry because they disobeyed him. I think he was angry because of the separation that he now had with his kids. And yeah, there were consequences. There were consequences. We, had a, we all have consequences. True love isn't true love without choices. Adam and Eve had choices. We can't force our kids to say, I love you. Then it means nothing. Only when they come to us and say to us, I love you, out of their own free will, that's when it like, explodes our hearts. <laughs> So, so there was consequences. And, and God was angry. But like I said, not, not angry at the, at the action. He was angry at the result. And, and the reason I say that is because straight after the curse, God makes them clothes. He says... And then the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. If I think of a parent clothing his naked child, that's only a picture of love. I don't see anything other than love in that picture. And then the Lord God said to him, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out and also take uh, of the tree of life and then eat forever, live forever. So, Here's the thing. Then he, then he banishes them out the garden. And he protects them. He protects the garden with flaming swords and cherubim. And it's quite extreme measures, I would think. You know, um, but if they had gone back to eat of the tree of life, there would have been eternity of separation. And that just wasn't an option for this dad who had already kicked in his salvation plan. They can't go back and eat of this tree now. Because I've got a plan that, that doesn't involve that. And he guards that, that tree of life. 
with flaming swords and children. They are not allowed to go back there until this is restored. Then they can live forever. So, in Genesis, we see a God that's not about punishment and banishment. He's about partnership and connection. He's about intimacy with his kids. And he'll do anything to restore that intimacy. The next script I'm going to look at is Luke 15. And it's the story of uh, the prodigal son. Luke 15, verse 11 to 32. And, well, let me just read the scripture and then I'll get into talking about it. Then Jesus says, Once there was a father with two sons. The younger son came to his father and said, Father, don't you think it's time to give me the share of your estate that belongs to me? So the father went ahead and distributed among the two sons their inheritance. I don't know if you've ever realized that he gave both sons their inheritance. Think about that for a second. I always thought it was just the one son. The other son got nothing. The other son got stuff too. Shortly afterward, the younger son packed up all his belongings and traveled off to see the world. He journeyed to a far-off land where he soon wasted all he was given in a binge of extravagant and reckless living. With everything and nothing left, he grew hungry, for there was a severe famine that was in the land. So he begged a farmer in that country to hire him, and the farmer hired him and sent him out to feed the pigs. The son was so famished he was willing to even eat the slop given to the pigs, because no one would feed him a thing. Humiliated, the son finally realized what he was doing. And he thought, there are many workers at my father's house who have all, fo- all the food they want and with plenty to spare. They lack nothing. Why am I here dying of hunger, feeding these pigs and eating their slop? I want to go back to home, to my father's house. And I'll say to him, Father, I was wrong. I've sinned against you. I'll never be worthy to, call you, uh, to be called your son. Please, Father, just treat me like one of your employees. So the young son set off home. And for a From a long distance away, his father saw him coming and dressed as a beggar and great compassion swelled up in his heart for his son who was returning home. So the father raced out to meet him. He swept him up in his arms and hugged him dearly and kissed him over and over with tender love. And then the son said, Father, I was wrong. I've sinned against you. I could never deserve to be be called your son. Just let me be. And the father interrupted and said, Son, you're home now. Turning to his servants, the father said, Quick, bring me the best robe, my very own robe. I will place it on his shoulders. Bring me the ring, the seal of sonship, and I will put it on his finger. Bring me out the best shoes you can find for my son. Let's prepare a great feast and celebrate. For this beloved son of mine was once dead, but now he's alive. Once he was lost, but now he is found. And everyone celebrated um, with overflowing joy. And then we get into the part about the older son and how the older son wasn't so keen on his celebration. I'm not going to get into that part, but the only thing I want to say about that last part about the older brother is don't be a victim. <laughs> he, he got his inheritance up front. He complains that he never had, he never had a, a bull to eat. I'm sure inheritance involved some bulls. He had his own ones to do. To, don't be a victim. But uh, <laughs> in these stories, 
most of the time Jesus was speaking to people who weren't the best examples in society. He wanted to address heartless religion and he also wanted to teach about the love of the Father. And Jesus came for two reasons. He came to, to, to reveal the love of the Father and to die for our sins. And I think even dying for our sins was revealing the love of the Father too. So, he's speaking to people that are rejected. They feel extremely far away from God. The religious system at the time hated them. They couldn't believe that Jesus even spoke to these people. But you know what's amazing about the fact that Jesus did speak to them and he was hanging around them? Is that they also hung around him. The only reason you hang around someone is because you like them. You know what I mean? They like Jesus. And, and Jesus says, if you see me, you've seen the Father. They, I never thought about that before. I was preparing this. They liked him. He was a good guy. And he revealed the Father's heart. Not religion. They knew all about religion. And those people hated him. That, that's, Jesus was telling something completely different. He didn't demonstrate religion. He demonstrated the love of the Father. That's very different. The one is very appealing and the other one is not at all. So he's, he embraces people whose self-worth is so low. They've got such a bad view, a bad perception of who the Father is. They think the Father is something that he's not. And he comes to change those perspectives. So coming back to our thoughts and our beliefs... Jesus came to address one of those, some of those things directly at the time. Talking to a sinner. But these guys have all got it wrong. You are loved. So, Jesus tells in the story how the Father feels about, about us. Compassion, love. He embraces people who have fallen. He responds to repentance. So there's a few points that I've come that I've listed here about the scripture. And the first one is that the Father never loses hope in us. The Son went against everything that the Father wanted for him. And the Father never lost hope in his boy. God doesn't give up on us. He's actually very proactive. <laughs> he sent Jesus to the cross. We didn't ask for that. That's what he wanted to do. Him and Jesus schemed this plan up together. He never loses his vision for what our life can become. It doesn't matter what we've done, what our past looks like. He had a perfect plan from when we were born. And everything that happens from that point into salvation... How messy that is, it doesn't affect our plan. God can change it in an instant and still achieve your plan for your life. He never loses hope in us. The second point is that the father was willing to endure shame to save his son from shame. So, in those days, what would have happened to that boy if the village had seen him first? Was that they would have found him, they would have caught him, and they would have dragged him into the center of town 
and they would have shamed him. They would have broken a clay pot over his head and they would have beaten him. And for me, Father knew that. The people Jesus was telling, to the, telling this story to knew that. Like he starts to tell the story and they're like, yeah, I know this one ends. You know, with the clay pots and blood, you know. So, can you imagine for that to happen, for that not to happen, the father had to race to his son and clothe him in a robe, put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and make him look like royalty so that the, the village didn't know any different. Again, God is not passive. He runs to us. And in that time, lifting your robe as a man and running <coughs> is shameful. So the father endured his own shame to save his son from that shame. So following on from that point, the father is, all, uh, the father is always looking our way. He didn't just wait for his boy to come crawling and groveling. He ran to him. And he was always standing on that porch waiting for his son to come over the hills because he knew that the day that it happened, he had to get there fast. So he was always waiting for his boy to come. Sure. The next point is the father always responds to us in love when we come to him with a repentant heart. The son says, Father, I've sinned, with you, sinned against you and in your sight there was repentance there. And repentance is not a heavy thing. It's, turning, it's returning um, from our own way to God's way. And in this situation, God's way was, was actually a glorious restoration. And his way was eating with the pigs. I think turning from God's ways, from our ways to God's ways is an amazing thing. When we turn to God's ways and we live in his ways, he can do things with our life that he could never do before. With a submitted heart, God can do amazing things. With a, with a, a rebellious heart, it's, it's, it's not so easy. What the boy realized, he, rec- realized, he recognized the truth of the father. He said, actually, my father's good. I can go to him. He started seeing that actually there's, there's something different here that I can actually walk into. So the last point <clears throat> on the scripture is that the father wants to restore us to our original plan. What's amazing about the story is that there's a lot of significance that I think is lost in the story uh, the idea of the ring and the robe and the shoes. It's, it's actually quite critical to the story and the context. So the, father, the son was coming back and he was willing to be a servant. But he didn't even get the words out of his mouth and the father had really restored him to a partner in the business. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, he didn't even know what he was getting himself back into, but his father wants to restore the original plan. And so the other significance, other than you know, showing his son as royalty so that no one else would take him, was that the ring, 
<clears throat> represents partnership with the Father. So that's where it's coming back and saying, no, you're part of the business. You're not my servant. You're my boy. You're my son. You always were and you always will be. The, the robe was a robe that apparently went down to his feet and that represents dignity. So the, son, the father was restoring dignity, dignity to his boy. Dignity that he had completely squandered and lost. It wasn't just the inheritance that he squandered. He squandered his own dignity too. And the father restored that with the robe. The father wants to reinstate all the possibilities in our lives that he has put in place. Regardless of anything that we've done. And the shoes, as far as I've read, in ancient culture represented the end to a time of weeping and mourning. So, yeah. So the son... I'm sure was unhappy, weeping and mourning. I'm sure the father was weeping and mourning at the distance between his son. His son comes back and time is finished. The weeping and mourning is done. Mm -hmm. This is the heart of the father. This is what we should believe about him. Because it's true. (laughs) We mustn't take our own view of our fathers in, in in the world or disappointments that we've had or ideas that we've got about God's out to get us. That's your issues. It's not Him. God's not out to get you. He's a God of love. Sean, you want to come tinker? He restores us to our original plan. He restores our dignity and He declares an end to the time of weeping and mourning. That's truth. He's a God of intimacy. He's a God who wants a partnership because that's why we were created. So I want to say that like the father robed the prodigal son, he wants to robe you with a new sense of worth as his children. You are worthy. You are worth more than gold and silver. And he wants to He wants you to never be ashamed again. He wants to restore dignity to your lives. And that those scars on your body are not scars of shame. They are evidence of the goodness of God. So this is what God is like. I can't say it enough. He wants to reinstate you to a place of partnership. You are a partner in the business. You're not a servant. He wants to clothe you and cover you from whatever has been the embarrassment or an embarrassment in your life. And he wants to restore dignity to you. He wants to see your tears become a thing of the past. The weeping and mourning is done. And he wants his joy and peace to be your portion. He wants to be intimate with you always. He always has. And that's why he created you right in the beginning. So as we, as I end, there's a a beautiful poem that I uh, found on the internet. It's not my poem. I wish it was. (laughs) It's not. Every line of this poem is a scripture. And it's called Love Letter, The Father's Love Letter. Now I've printed a whole bunch out there. If anyone wants to take it home, they can. But I love it if you all closed your eyes. 
And I want to read this love letter from God to you. You may not know me, my child, but I know everything about you. I know when you sit down and when you rise up. I am familiar with all your ways. Even the very hairs in your head are numbered. For you were made in my image. In me you live and move and have your being. For you are my offspring. I knew you even before you were conceived. I chose you when I planned creation. You were not a mistake. For all, the days, for all your days are written in my book. I determined the exact time of your birth and where you would live. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. I knit you together in your mother's womb and brought you forth on the day that you were born. I have been misrepresented by those who don't know me. I am not distant and angry, but I am the complete expression of love. And it is my desire to lavish my love on you simply because you are my child and I am your father. I offer you more than your earthly father ever could, for I am the perfect father. Every good gift that you receive comes from my hand, for I am your provider and I meet all your needs. My plan for your future has always been filled with hope, because I love you with an everlasting love. My thoughts towards you are countless as the sand on the seashore, and I rejoice over you with singing. I will never stop doing good to you, for you are my treasured possession. I desire to establish you with all my heart and all my soul, and I want to, know, I want to show you the great and marvelous things. If you seek me with you, all your heart, you will find me. Delight in me, and I will give you the desires of your heart, for it is I who gave you those desires. I am able to do more than you could ever possibly imagine, for I am your greatest encourager. I am also the Father who comforts you in all your troubles. When you are brokenhearted, I am close to you. As a shepherd carries a lamb, I have carried you close to my heart. On, the, on, on one day, I will wipe every tear away from your eyes, and I'll take away all the pain you have suffered on this earth. I'm your Father, and I love you even as I love my Son, Jesus. For in Jesus, my love for you is revealed. He is the exact representation of my being. He came to demonstrate that I am for you, not against you. I tell you that I am not counting your sins. Jesus died so that you and I could be reconciled. His death was the ultimate expression of my love for you. I gave up everything that I loved that I might gain your love. If you receive the gift of my son Jesus, you receive me. And nothing will ever separate you from my love again. Come home and I will throw the biggest party in heaven you have ever seen. I've always been father and I will always be father. My question is, will you be my child? I'm waiting for you. Love, Dad. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information, please visit thecollectivechurch.ca today.